The year, 279 B.C. The place, a small Italian town called Asculum. King Pyrrhus of Epirus has won a great battle, but at a staggering cost. He is the first Greek king to face the rising power of the Roman Republic. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hey guys, and welcome back to Unknown Soldiers. I am, as always, your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 18, One More Such Victory. Guys, I'm excited for this one, because today I get to talk about ancient history some more. Today's episode is about King Pyrrhus of Epirus, the first Greek king who had the enormous bad luck to run afoul of the rising power of Rome. And I am so happy about it today. Guys, this is a roller coaster, wild ride today. Before we get too deep, though, I have to give a note on sources, and this sort of applies for my last episode as well about the Spartans. As much as I love ancient history, and I really do, it's one of those fields where there are a lot of things we just don't know or can't know, where our evidence is uncertain. We only have a few written sources for the life of Pyrrhus of Epirus. Most of those sources were written long after he was dead. Not all of them are 100% reliable. They disagree in lots of places, and they reference other works that we have lost. Pyrrhus, for instance, supposedly wrote memoirs and a work on the art of war, but these don't exist anymore. We haven't found them. They're gone. They haven't survived. So a lot of my quotes today, well, don't just take them with a grain of salt. Take them with the whole salt shaker. Because ancient writers really like to just make up speeches off the cuff. So there's going to be a lot of me saying maybe, or probably, or allegedly throughout today's episode. But I will stick to the sources we have the best I can. And if you want a discussion on those sources, look no farther than my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. But aside from that, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on, because Pyrrhus is a crazy murder king. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources, some images, some maps, some commentary are on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, all errors, mispronunciations, mistakes are my own. It is easy to mispronounce ancient Greek or Latin, so I'm gonna screw some things up. But still, though, everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge or the best that ancient sources can provide. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get rolling. Today's story begins with a figure of speech you may have heard before. The phrase is Pyrrhic victory, and it means a victory that is not worth the cost whether it's incomplete, whether it comes with a terrible price, or it just doesn't accomplish what you wanted it to accomplish. All of those are summed up with the little phrase, Pyrrhic victory. You guys are smart. So you probably guessed that today's protagonist slash antagonist, the Greek king Pyrrhus of Epirus, is what gives this phrase its name. More specifically, the term comes from his battles at Heraclea and Asculum. These are widely regarded as the original Pyrrhic victories, since they allegedly cost Pyrrhus so many of his best men and so many resources that they weren't worth what he sacrificed even though he won them. He won them, but 
the cost was too high. But there's a different kind of Pyrrhic victory. A different kind of victory that isn't worth it, not just a victorious battle that happened to cost too much. The James Hauser version of the Pyrrhic victory, the angle I'm going to take in today's episode, has less to do with battles and numbers and losses, with that easy math of popular military history. When we zoom away from these two famous Pyrrhic victories and look at the life of our subject, we see a Pyrrhic victory on a much grander scale. A life spent in constant warfare, a life full of tireless energy, a great warrior king who led his armies across the world. But what did he actually achieve in the end? What did he accomplish? What did he leave behind? This is my definition of Pyrrhic victory, because it fits the real man's life much closer than the popular version. The kind of victory where winning doesn't mean anything at all, no matter what the cost, because the battle served no purpose to begin with. Fighting the battle and losing a lot of men wasn't the Pyrrhic victory. The fact that the battle had no point was. My definition of the Pyrrhic victory is one where everything you do is aimless, pointless, futile. No matter how talented or brave or wonderful those deeds are, no matter how talented, brave, or wonderful you are. Where your accomplishments are without any objective or overarching purpose. Effort for its own sake, washed away like sandcastles just as quickly as you created them. And this will be my main focus today. When is a victory not worth it? What is the victory for? What if all your struggle is bringing you no closer to your goal? What if you're swimming in place, unable to gain traction no matter how hard you try? When you find yourself doing this, how do you react? Well, let's look at the life of Pyrrhus as a good example of what not to do. This is going to be fun. Today, we'll be talking about the life and military career of Pyrrhus, king of Epirus. We're going to start with what's going on in the broader world, as we always do. Then we're going to travel with Pyrrhus on a violent tour of Italy, Sicily, and Greece, and watch him make lots of enemies and very few friends. And we will see him meet his violent end, the only kind of end he really could have expected. And of course, at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic, a Greek tragedy, if you will, there will be breaks. This is your chance to pause, microwave some lasagna, mow the grass, do the thing you need to do. So, grab your pike or your slingshot, and guys, don't walk behind the elephants, because we're going on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? Well, we're going to Greece. But that almost certainly tells you nothing because a lot of stuff has happened in Greece. So maybe better to ask, when are we going? Before we meet Pyrrhus of Epirus, we need to introduce his age. And what an age! It was a time of betrayal, violence, and turmoil. Just an absolute loony bin of war, assassination, double-crossing, and lots of alcohol to wash it all down. And you can blame it all on Alexander the Great. Alexander had been the ruler of Macedon, a kingdom in what is now northern Greece. His father Philip II, a great general in his own right, turned Macedon into the dominant power in Greece when he defeated the Greek cities. 
Alexander took his father's amazing world-class army and used it to conquer the entire Persian Empire, advancing from Greece to India. He kicked apart the established order of most of the civilized world like it was a Jenga tower, and he did it all in about 10 years. And then he had the nerve to die at the age of 33. There is this legend, uh, one story, again we don't know if it's true, might or might not be true, but if it isn't true, it should be true, that when he was asked who his empire should go to when he died, Alexander just said, To the strongest. Well, if that isn't an invitation to disaster, I don't know what is, because every general, everyone who looked at each other like, well, maybe I'm the strongest. Alex's death in 323 BC left a jumbo-sized power vacuum in its wake and turned his still very fragile empire into a massive playground for all his family members, generals, secretaries, bodyguards, his freaking mom, everyone to just stab and poison and declare war on each other. This cast of lunatics is known to history as the Diadochi, which translates roughly as the successors. So the next 50 years are often called either the Age of the Diadochi or the Funeral Games. Funeral Games. Inheritance disputes are a nightmare at the best of times, but they're even worse when everyone has an army and basically the entire civilized world is the playground and even their armies sometimes betrayed them. The Age of the Diadochi was nuts. And someday I want to do a series on it. But as we all know, someday I want to do a series on everything. I would compare it to Game of Thrones, but the funeral games had even more characters, even more of which died violently, even more backstabbing, even more plots, even more unbelievable plot twists. So it's actually much worse than Game of Thrones. But I describe all this just to set up how chaotic things are going to seem in this story sometimes. So while Pyrrhus is rolling around doing his thing, we'll occasionally get flashes of the balls to the wall tire fire that is going on in the rest of the world. The age of the Diadochi comes between what we think of as the classical period of Greece on the one hand and the Roman era on the other. It's an in-between period. And you know, I love my in-between periods, those odd times when things are in transition. And this is one of them. So this is long after Athens and Sparta and Thermopylae, long after Sparta ceased to be a real power in the ancient world, but before the Roman Empire. The term historians use for this in-between period is the Hellenistic period. Greek or Macedonian kings, called Hellenistic or successor kings, would rule Syria, Egypt, Persia, Turkey for centuries. The last and most famous Hellenistic monarch you've heard of, Cleopatra the last Hellenistic monarch of Egypt. So that's when we are in history, guys. After classical Greece, before classical Rome. After Socrates, before Caesar. For instance, the great Greek philosopher Aristotle died a couple of years before Pyrrhus of Epirus was born. But Euclid, the inventor of geometry, is at work in the Hellenistic court of King Ptolemy I in Egypt. And Archimedes is a young man when Pyrrhus dies. This is still a very, very pre-modern society where women are treated like garbage. Heck, most people are treated like garbage, but women even more so. And human life comes very cheap. Most people in this story worship the Greek gods or some version of them. You don't even want to know what their hygiene was like. Hope all that helps. So before we finally get to Pyrrhus of Epirus, what the heck is an Epirus? I know there won't know Epirus in my geography class. Okay. 
So, for much of Greek history, Epirus was more of a region than a country. Epirus is located in northwestern Greece, on either side of the modern border of Albania and Greece. The Epirotes were organized into multiple tribes, the strongest of which were the Molossians. They had no large cities, only villages and towns, and weren't a very powerful force in the Greek world at first. Even though they spoke Greek and worshipped Greek gods, most quote-unquote Greeks from places like Athens or Sparta or Thebes considered them to be little better than barbarians. To be fair though, those guys also thought the Macedonians were barbarians until Philip II and Alexander the Great beat them into the dirt. But during Philip and Alexander's conquests though, Epirus had sort of unified when the Molossians got the other tribes to sign on to a military alliance. The kings of the Molossians claimed direct descendants from the Greek hero Achilles, and they became an ally of Philip II around the period 340 BC. This is when Epirus sort of unifies, begins its rise to power. As part of their alliance, Philip II married the Molossian princess Olympias, a powerful and amazing figure in her own right. Despite their absolute lack of marital bliss, it was Olympias who was the mother of Alexander the Great. This ended up making Pyrrhus Alexander the Great's cousin. Distant cousin. Either way, the kings of Epirus were almost as unlucky as the Stuart dynasty, since they just kept dying horribly. Alexander I of Epirus, uncle to Alexander the Great, was jealous of his nephew's success and decided to get into a war of his own. When the Greek city of Tarentum on the coast of southern Italy asked for his help in a war against the Italians, he got his stupid butt killed at the Battle of Pandosia in 331 BC. His last words were supposedly that while his nephew had been waging war against women, he had been waging war against men. Which is a pretty weak last set of words comparing yourself to your nephew and all. But again, uh, Alexander I of Epirus would not be the last king of Epirus to have bad luck trying to help Tarentum out, as we will see. But Alexander of Epirus' death left his other nephew, Eacides, as the king of Epirus. And this is Pyrrhus' dad. Pyrrhus was born in 319 BC to King Eacides, so this puts him being born about four years after Alexander the Great died and everything inevitably went to hell. Just about as soon as baby Pyrrhus could walk, his father was inevitably sucked into the funeral game's murder circus. Eacides marched off to war, but his own army rebelled against him, marched back to Epirus, and replaced him with his nephew, Neoptolemus II. Eacides had to flee into exile, but this left Pyrrhus, a toddler, also running into exile. Since toddlers cannot run very fast without falling over, bodyguards grabbed Pyrrhus and ran, pursued by assassins. Some toddlers have bullies at the playground. Pyrrhus was chased by his very own murder squad. It's the age of the Didokai, this stuff is happening everywhere all the time. Pyrrhus and his bodyguards made it to the court of King Glaucius of the Taulantians, one of a number of Illyrian tribes located in modern Albania. Glaucius kept the toddler and raised him at his court, because it might be useful to have an Epirote king sitting around. You know, just in case. So while Pyrrhus was growing up at Glaucius' court in exile, his dad Eacides came back and retook the Epirote throne. But Pyrrhus's pop lasted about five seconds before a Macedonian army came storming in, smashed him up, and killed him. So yeah, Epirote kings don't have a good track record so far, we're zero for two, lots of violent death. 
Gosh, I sure hope Pyrrhus doesn't suffer the same fate. That would be really, really tragic. Anyway. But a few years later, in 307 BC, Glaucius invaded Epirus himself and put the 11-year-old Pyrrhus on the throne. Now, Eleven is barely old enough to run a lemonade stand, and probably not a profitable one, so Pyrrhus was essentially a puppet king. But now he was officially King Pyrrhus of Epirus. We've arrived. Kind of. He ruled for around six years, ruled quote-unquote, until he went off to Glaucius's court in Illyria to attend a wedding. He was gone for about five seconds before the Molossians overthrew him and invited Neoptolemus II back into power. And just to make sure you understand, this kind of stuff is happening everywhere 24-7 right now. It's the age of the Diadochi. Just a revolving door of random kings murdering or overthrowing each other. It's the funeral games. No one knows what's going on. So if you're confused, don't worry. Everyone else is also confused. And before they stop being confused, they're dead. So Pyrrhus, a newly unemployed 17-year-old Greek prince, ended up at the court of his brother-in-law. This was his sister's husband, Demetrius, the son of Antigonus the One-Eyed, one of the most powerful of all the Diadochi. Pyrrhus and Demetrius became good friends, and Pyrrhus even impressed Antigonus himself. When asked who the greatest general of the age was going to be, Antigonus the One-Eyed supposedly said, Pyrrhus, if he lives long enough. Yeah, you notice that qualification? It was a pretty lethal time all around, and everyone knew it. The teenaged Pyrrhus fought for Antigonus and Demetrius in the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BC. Ipsus was a big stinking battle, one of the largest of all the Diadochi battles. Hordes of men, cavalry, and war elephants on each side. Pyrrhus wowed everyone with his bravery and skill, but Antigonus the One-Eyed lost the battle and his life. As part of the peace settlement in 298 BC, Demetrius agreed to hand over Pyrrhus as a hostage to yet another successor king, Ptolemy I of Egypt. So yeah, Pyrrhus is going on a sort of involuntary little tour of the entire Mediterranean at this point. Ptolemy took Pyrrhus in and treated him remarkably well. Hostages in the Diadochi period were treated less like prisoners and more like they were under house arrest, almost as if they were members of the family. If you need a comparison, think of uh, Theon Greyjoy in Game of Thrones. I keep having to reference that, but it's, it's such a well-known piece of fiction lately that it's one of the, my go-to references. Apparently, everyone who met Pyrrhus in this time period liked him because Ptolemy allowed the young buck to marry his stepdaughter Antigone. Pyrrhus and Antigone were still hanging out, probably doing what all newlywed teenagers spend their time doing, when Ptolemy decided to use his young hostage to his advantage. He decided to send Pyrrhus back to Epirus with an army to retake his kingdom, and to counterbalance some of Ptolemy's own enemies in Macedonia. Hey, some people get kitchenware or sheet sets as a wedding gift from their in-laws. Ptolemy gave Pyrrhus a phalanx and some elephants, and I think that's pretty cool. Don't know about you guys, but I wouldn't want to register that gift on my tax return. So when Pyrrhus returned to Epirus with an army, he was facing off against his cousin Neoptolemus yet again. Remember, these guys have swapped thrones like twice now already. But Pyrrhus said, hey, we don't have to fight. There's no reason to tear Epirus apart in a civil war. Let's rule together as co-kings. Neoptolemus smiled, nodded, and shook Pyrrhus's hand, probably measuring him up for a coffin. It's the age of the Diadochi. Someone's gonna die. 
So Pyrrhus was back home for all of five seconds before his new co-king or bro-king or whatever was planning to murder him. Now, the story I'm about to tell you doesn't make a lot of sense. It comes from Plutarch, the Roman historian, who himself was working from numerous sources, many of whom probably exaggerated or made stuff up because it sounded cool. But I just think the story's kind of funny, and I'm going to paraphrase it. None of this dialogue is real, I'm just summing up what happens, right? Okay. So there was an Epirote religious festival, where after paying tribute to the war god Ares, the kings would give and receive presents, like violent Christmas. One of Neoptolemus' friends, Gilo, gave Pyrrhus a pair of good oxen, and Pyrrhus' cupbearer, Myrtilus, was immediately like, hey, those are good oxen, can I have them? And Pyrrhus said, ha, no, and gave them to someone else. So Myrtilus got drunk and complained about it to Gilo, who may or may not have seduced the young cupbearer, this is ancient Greece, man-on-man -man seduction happens all the time, and convinced him to try and poison Pyrrhus on Neoptolemus' behalf, like, like, hey, you should kill your king for me, you should kill your king for my boss, also, you're hogging the comforter. Myrtilus immediately told Pyrrhus about the plot, and Pyrrhus said, hmm, I better keep an eye on that guy, but he didn't do anything about it. But Neoptolemus decided to brag about the plot during a party at his sister's house. Like, yep, guys, I'm totally going to kill Pyrrhus with poison. Hope no one finds out about that. Wouldn't that be embarrassing? Now, this was really stupid because a local shepherd's wife, who pretended to be asleep, overheard the plot, and she ran off and told Pyrrhus' wife Antigone, who told her husband, Babe, babe, you really need to get on this murder plot thing. I'm tired of reminding you to do things. You never listen to me. Put the Xbox controller down. Look at me, Pyrrhus. Look at me, Pyrrhus. You need to solve the murder plot thing. So Pyrrhus had Neoptolemus killed before his rival could kill him, and no one seems to have cared. Epirus's population, going through their like 50th change of rulers in the last decade, just kind of shrugged and got back to work. Pyrrhus was finally, and for the rest of his life, the only king of Epirus. So now that Pyrrhus is through what we might call a troubled childhood, let's get a good look at him. Here is how Plutarch describes Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus in the air of his face had more of the terror than of the majesty of kingly power. He had not many teeth, but his upper jaw was one continuous bone, on which the usual intervals between the teeth were indicated by slight depressions. Okay, that's kind of scary. Uh, now, Pyrrhus's dental condition might have been an extreme case of fusion of the teeth, a genetic anomaly. And given that the Epirote royal line had multiple instances of uncles marrying nieces and that sort of thing, that kind of checks out. At least he didn't have to worry about flossing, I guess. Pyrrhus was apparently terrifying in both appearance and combat ability. When he was on the battlefield and just slaughtering people, most sane people would be like, yeah, I think I'm going to stay the hell away from that guy. From what we know of Pyrrhus's character, he was absolutely devoted to combat and war. It was all he cared about. There's this one time that someone asked him what he thought of this guy's poetry, and Pyrrhus was like, oh, I don't read poetry, but I know he was a great general. And that kind of sums it up. I think a lot of this was his chaotic upbringing. Think about this crazy time period, the age of the Diadochi, and consider that Pyrrhus has never known anything else. His life has been determined by war, and it's all he knows. Now, he had some good qualities. Pyrrhus was, unusually for the time, not a womanizer or a heavy drinker. Plutarch describes him, off the battlefield, as a sober, decent, generous person. He was a big-time animal lover. He supposedly rescued and adopted a dog that was starving near its master's tomb. 
Supposedly, when Pyrrhus did die, his pet eagle starved itself to death, and his dog jumped onto his master's funeral pyre. And I assume the ancient Greek version of Pita protested said funeral. But there was something else up with old Pyrrhus. It's hard to psychoanalyze someone from the ancient world, not least because they operate in such a different moral and social world from our own. But Pyrrhus seemed to be permanently haunted by the shadow of Alexander the Great. Everyone, and I mean everyone in this era, was trying to be the next Alexander. An endless line of Alex imitators, Alexander cosplayers, were trying to copy his incredible deeds. And Pyrrhus, keep in mind, is Alexander's cousin and supposedly descended from Achilles. He had a lot to live up to. His burning ambition, his obsession with war, and his dreams of conquest all seem to have made Pyrrhus a great battlefield general, but with an unbalanced, reckless personality, lacking foresight or patience. Even though he would be remembered, dubiously I think, as one of ancient history's great generals, he never seemed to have a long-term strategy or goal in mind. As much as he might have wanted to be, Pyrrhus never could be Alexander. Now that he was secure on the throne, Pyrrhus immediately went looking for a good war, and his first target would be the Kingdom of Macedon. Pyrrhus had a claim to the throne because he was Alexander's cousin, and the kings of Macedon had a pretty high attrition rate lately because it's the age of the Diadochi, so Pyrrhus might as well give it a shot. Now, to get too deep into Pyrrhus' wars with Macedon would be lunacy because I'd have to introduce like 10 other characters and explain what they're all up to, and then it's five hours later. I already have enough named characters in this story, so I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to kind of skim over them instead. In 292 BC, five years after he had returned to Epirus and become its only king, Pyrrhus went to war against his former brother-in-law, Demetrius, king of Macedon. Pyrrhus, like Demetrius, like so many people in this era, were sometimes friends and sometimes enemies who were always ready to backstab each other. This invasion started a series of off-again, on-again wars, where Pyrrhus would constantly be trying to invade Macedon, and whoever was on the throne at the moment would be fending him off with a stick. Pyrrhus' war for Macedon produced mixed results. He never suffered a serious defeat, but he was never able to hold on to the kingdom. It was just a back-and-forth series of seesaw wars that saw Epirus gain some border territories, but not much else. What did come out of these wars was Pyrrhus' reputation as a great general and warrior king. In 289 BC, he attacked one of Demetrius' armies under a general named Pantacus. The fighting was brutal, vicious, hand-to-hand -hand Greek warfare, and in the midst of the fighting, Pantacus challenged Pyrrhus to personal combat and Pyrrhus, with visions of Achilles and Alexander dancing in his mind, accepted. The two men threw spears at each other and then came to sword blows. Pyrrhus was wounded, but managed to stab his foe in the thigh and the neck, forcing Pantacus's bodyguards to carry him from the battlefield. Inspired by their king's bravery and skill, the Epirote army surged forward and scattered the Macedonian army. This battle sets the model for Pyrrhus' entire career. It was classic Pyrrhus. Suicidal bravery, epic duels, inspiring battlefield leadership. Pyrrhus was recognized across the Greek world for his courage and was given the nickname Eagle by his army. Great success! Except that while Pyrrhus had been fighting this battle, Demetrius had been in Epirus with his army plundering the countryside. After Pyrrhus' victory, both sides just went back home and nothing else happened. 
Great victory, but it accomplished nothing in the end. And as we'll see, this is classic Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus was finally driven out of Macedonia in 284 BC by the new successor king, Lysimachus. So after almost a decade of warfare, Pyrrhus had expanded his borders a little bit, but accomplished nothing else. Would he continue to try to gain the throne of Macedon? What was his next move? Pyrrhus was still trying to figure that out when an opportunity presented itself. The Greek city of Tarentum, on the southern coast of Italy, was facing an invasion by Italian barbarians and needed to be rescued by a strong army with a strong leader. This was history repeating itself. Remember that other king of Epirus, Alexander I, got a help us message from the same city, went off and got his butt killed. But Pyrrhus currently had a powerful army and a solid reputation. And he was over the moon at the idea of new conquests in a land Alexander the Great had never seen, of new deeds to add to his name. Yeah, let's go to Italy. Macedonia is a stupid kingdom anyway. But there's a fun story that comes straight from Plutarch about Pyrrhus' decision to go to Italy. Maybe not a true story, again, but a good one. Pyrrhus had a close friend and confidant, an expert diplomat named Cineus, who was trying to figure out what exactly his king's plan was. I'm going to paraphrase this conversation. Cineus asked Pyrrhus what he would do after he'd taken Italy. Pyrrhus said, well, I'll move on to and take over Sicily. Well, what then? Well, I guess I'll invade and take over Africa. What then? Well, with all those resources, I can come back and conquer Greece and Macedonia. And then? Well, then I can spend the rest of my life drinking and partying and having deep conversations with my friends. And then Cineus basically said, but you have plenty of wine and all your friends are here. So what's stopping you from doing that now? Do you have to go overseas and kill a bunch of people to do what you could just do anyway? And Pyrrhus didn't really have an answer for that. To me, it sounds like he never had an end goal, no end to what he wanted or what he was trying to accomplish. Pyrrhus just liked to fight. And what's crazy is that as Pyrrhus was preparing to invade Italy, Macedon was unusually wide open. Lysimachus and several other successor kings had recently died, and if there was ever a chance to take over Macedon, it was now. This had been the goal Pyrrhus had been after for 10 years, but it sounds like he was frustrated, tired of Macedon. It had been harder than he thought, so he looked somewhere else that seemed like an easier target. And this would be classic Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus was always seeking an easy conquest, and when he got frustrated or impatient, he didn't get determined or dig in his heels or stick it out to the end. He just looked for an easier war to win, because this warrior king stuff was somehow much harder than the story said. When the going got tough, Pyrrhus got going. Somewhere else, where the going wasn't so tough. Somewhere he could gain some easy victories and win some easy glory. Somewhere like Italy he would come to regret that decision. The Greek city of Tarentum had told him that they were fighting Italian barbarians, but Pyrrhus didn't know what he was in for because these barbarians called themselves Romans.
Only 45 miles to the west of Epirus, the Greek coastal cities of Italy were at war with a new, barely understood enemy. Most great Greek kings had never heard of this random Italian city that was kicking up such a ruckus. This was Rome. The Roman Republic of Pyrrhus's age was not the Roman superpower that we see in our heads from movies like Gladiator or TV shows like Spartacus and HBO's Rome. This was Rome in its early years, when it didn't even dominate all of Italy yet. And this was the Roman Republic. The Empire was 250 years in the future. The Roman Republic was led by the Senate, a large assembly of nobles that made all the important decisions and guided the course of their city. They held yearly elections for all the chief officials, the most important of which were the two consuls. Each year, two consuls were elected, and they led Rome's armies into battle. Because Rome was in an almost constant state of war. While the Republic had almost nothing to do with the great successor kings to the east, it was fighting various Italian or Celtic or Gallic tribes all the time. Rome was surrounded by enemies, and this gave its citizens a very aggressive and stubborn mindset. They placed virtue and honor very highly, just like the Greeks. But the key difference in their versions of honor was that while Rome saw glory and virtue in a national patriotic context, people like Pyrrhus were more concerned with individual, like Greek mythical heroic glory. They were trying to imitate Alexander. I haven't talked much about ancient Rome in this podcast, as fascinated as I am by it, because I feel like it's been done, and by better. It's just, it's just not very unknown. But I gotta say, there's always been something special, unique about the early Romans. They're different. There's something different about these people. They're almost scary. They don't give up, admit defeat, or ask for peace terms. They just keep coming. In warfare, the Romans are kind of like, I don't know, the Borg. And like the Borg, once they conquer you, you're assimilated. Now you're Roman too. Rome had been slowly expanding across the Italian peninsula for the last two centuries, and despite setbacks, defeats, and disasters, they just kept coming, and by now they had almost all of southern and central Italy under their control. The main holdouts were the Greek cities in the south, especially Tarentum. Tarentum was originally founded by Spartan exiles, but Tarentum did not resemble Sparta in any way whatsoever. Pyrrhus would be frustrated by the Tarentines' lack of discipline and seemingly luxurious lifestyle. The new war with Rome had flared up after a series of diplomatic incidents in 283 BC. According to the historian Cassius Dio, the Romans sent a former consul named Postumius to negotiate peace terms, but Postumius was insulted and ridiculed by the Tarentine Democratic Assembly, the low point being when a particularly drunk Tarentine, um, rubbed his literal crap all over the diplomat's robe. As the Tarentines laughed at the proud Roman, Postumius said, Laugh while you may, for long will be the period of weeping when you wash this garment clean with your blood. Even if that's not a completely accurate quote, I assume people said stuff like that all the time in the ancient world, and they usually meant it. Postumius returned to Rome and displayed his caca-covered robe to the Senate, who immediately declared war and began to wipe the floor with the Tarentines, because it's Rome. But the Roman army of this era was not the well-oiled, well-organized steel monster you might have in your head. It was essentially a militia, where every Roman citizen was liable to be conscripted into the legion when it went to war. The Romans originally fought as a hoplite phalanx in the style of the Greek cities, 
but they evolved their tactics over time to face the more mobile infantry of enemies like the Gauls and the Samnites. The new Roman army that was developed to fight these enemies was what's called the Manipular System, based on its core tactical unit of the Maniple. The Manipular Legion fought as a deep infantry formation organized into four ranks sorted by age and wealth. The first rank were the Velites, the poorest men in the Legion, skirmish infantry with shields and light armor who would pelt their enemies with javelins. The next rank were the Hastati, young citizens in their 20s with light chainmail and a square shield called the Scutum. They each had one or two spears called the Pila, which they would throw into the enemy ranks before charging them with their short stabbing sword, the Gladius. The third rank were the Principes, older men in their 30s in heavier armor who served as the backup if the Hastatis failed to break through. Finally, to the rear were the Triarii, the experienced, older, wealthier men armed with heavy metal armor and large shields. They were the unit of last resort, so much so that the Romans had a saying for a desperate situation, which was going to the Triarii, like, we're in the thick of it now, we're down to the Triarii. This heavy infantry steamroller was highly effective against almost every opponent it faced, and it was backed up by cavalry made up of the very wealthiest Romans. But the Romans also incorporated conquered people into their legions, so every legion of Roman citizens marched with an equal force of Italian allies. I say allies in the loosest sense of the word because these were essentially subjects. But the Roman legion was still an up-and-coming force, not nearly the juggernaut it would be a couple of centuries later, and they were fighting one of the best combined arms forces the world had ever seen the Macedonian war machine developed by Philip and Alexander the Great, used by all the Diadochi, the successor kings, including Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus's army was a diverse force, with powerful heavy cavalry from Thessaly and Macedon, flexible archers and skirmishers, and tough mercenaries from the regions of Thrace and Illyria. But the core of the successor king army was the wall of steel formed by the Macedonian phalanx. Now, you might be thinking of the ancient Greek shield wall, the hoplite phalanx that the Spartans had used, but that had been almost 200 years ago. People had been working on this stuff. The Macedonian pike phalanx consisted of a tightly packed formation of lightly armored men wielding the 20-foot-long Sarissa spear. This was double the length of the old Greek hoplite spear and had to be held with both hands because of the length, which meant that the phalanx had much smaller shields than the old big bronze hoplite shield but they made up for this by presenting just this crazy spear wall, a mass of spears that would just turn anything in their path into a pincushion. They formed as many as 16 men deep, so the hedge of points was both deep and wide, and it would just come towards you like a steamroller. It was like a human hedgehog, often thousands of men strong, just bearing down on you like a spike trap in an Indiana Jones movie. The Macedonian pike phalanx was reportedly terrifying. Just imagine this coming towards you. Even a century later, a Roman consul admitted publicly that he shook with fear watching the rippling wall of spears coming towards his army. Pyrrhus had another element to his army that the Romans had not encountered before. When he came to Italy, Pyrrhus would arrive with 20 war elephants. These were not as big as you might think. All evidence is that these were either smaller Indian elephants or the now extinct North African elephant, much smaller animals than the African elephants from most zoos. 
They were usually mounted by a single trained Indian driver and maybe an archer or two on the animal's back. They were most useful as a shock weapon to break up enemy formations, and they were also very effective against cavalry, since untrained horses would panic and flee at the unfamiliar smell of a Greek war elephant. But elephants were a surprisingly fragile war weapon. It wouldn't take much for them to panic, and then everyone behind them was about to have a very bad day. A worse day, I guess, since they were already walking through the elephant's, um, leavings. Elephants will panic multiple times in today's story, with always bad results for Pyrrhus. But still, Pyrrhus's army was one of the best in the world, maybe the best fighting force in the world at the time. A disciplined army with excellent tactics, unit diversity, and a skilled and brave commander. When he arrived in Italy, it would be the first time the Roman legion faced a modern Greek army on the battlefield, and neither Pyrrhus of Epirus nor the Roman Republic would ever be the same. Pyrrhus set out from Epirus in 280 BC with a large, impressive army. He had 20,000 men in his Macedonian-style Epirote phalanx, 3,000 cavalry, 2,500 archers and slingers, and 20 of his prized war elephants. Even a massive storm and near-disastrous shipwreck couldn't stop Pyrrhus from landing in Italy. He had come to save the Tarentines from the Romans. Yeah, but who would save them from Pyrrhus? The Epirote king wore out his welcome very, very quickly. When you asked Pyrrhus for help, he would come, no doubt about that. But he was going to be calling the shots. Tarentum was forced to follow Pyrrhus's orders, accept an Epirote garrison into their city, and let him conscript their men and force them into the army. Pyrrhus's natural tendencies seemed to have been very authoritarian and tyrannical. He was the opposite of diplomatic, all he cared about was war, and his arrogant behavior tended to alienate people even when they really needed his help. This is going to be a pattern for Pyrrhus, classic Pyrrhus. People beg him for help, then he arrives, and they immediately regret their decision. The Byzantine historian Zonaris says of the Tarentines, They found in Pyrrhus a master instead of an ally. When the Roman historian Plutarch describes Pyrrhus's Roman alter ego, Gaius Marius, he uses this phrase which I think also suits Pyrrhus to a T. For since he was naturally virile and fond of war, and since he received a training in military rather than in civil life, his temper was fierce when he came to exercise authority. But Pyrrhus mustered his army and left Tarentum to engage the invaders. A Roman army under the consul Publius Valerius Lavinius was marching south, plundering the territory, a traditional ancient tactic to force an enemy to come out and fight. His destination was the town of Heraclea, one of Tarentum's outer settlements on the southern Italian coast. The stage was set for the first great battle between a Greek king and the Roman Republic. The two armies faced off on either side of the Cirrus River near the town of Heraclea. At this point, Pyrrhus supposedly have, was supposed to have looked at the Roman camp from a hill and said basically, man, these don't look like barbarians. Maybe he was getting a little worried, so he sent an offer to Lavinius that he would serve as a mediator and negotiate peace terms between Rome and Tarentum. But the Romans said, nope, nope, this is going to be a fight. Pyrrhus and the Romans probably each had around 35,000 to 40,000 troops at Heraclea, though exact numbers with ancient history, as I keep emphasizing, are always a crapshoot. The sources all say different things. You get it. 
Pyrrhus was not eager to try and cross the river to attack his enemy. A contested river crossing is, and always has been, one of the most dangerous maneuvers in warfare. So he posted some light troops to watch the ford and see what the Romans were up to while he waited for reinforcements. But the Battle of Heraclea began when the Romans jumped the gun. They came storming across the river in their heavy armor with their swords, and at the same time, their cavalry crossed at a hidden ford upriver, riding down and slaughtering Pyrrhus's light infantry units. Pyrrhus hadn't expected the Romans to launch a bull rush attack across a guarded river, but they had caught him by surprise. Instantly, Pyrrhus gathered up his cavalry to ride to the rescue of his forward units, while his infantry and elephants got into formation and began their slow march forward. Pyrrhus led his horsemen into the thick of the melee, his purple cloak and burnished armor glittering in the Italian sun, stabbing and yelling and thundering around in his warhorse, probably having the time of his life. At this point, one of the Roman officers spotted Pyrrhus and rode directly towards him, trying to engage the king in single combat. This Roman unhorsed Pyrrhus and nearly killed him, before the king's bodyguards hacked him down. Apparently pretty shaken by this encounter, Pyrrhus decided to swap his armor and cloak with one of his close companions. Let them go after that guy. The ancient sources don't really pass much judgment on this move, and I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Seems like a kind of a crappy thing to do if you ask me. Pyrrhus is like, hey dude, take my armor. I might be in danger. Yeah, bro, because you charge into battle like a maniac. By now, the Macedonian phalanx and the Roman heavy infantry had closed the distance and were hacking away at each other, the human battering ram against the human hedgehog. Ancient battle, guys, must have been a terrifying, confusing experience. It was up close and personal, dusty and sweaty and muddy and bloody. The heat from thousands of human bodies, the, the smell, mixed with horses and blood, and now elephants. You could barely see through the dust kicked up by thousands of stomping feet and galloping horses, your face hidden behind a heavy steel helmet, gripping your spear or your sword, and pushed forward with thousands of your comrades into a wall of bronze and iron. The Romans tried to wedge their swords into the guts of Pyrrhus' horses, or into the necks of his heavy pikemen. The men of the phalanx clung together and plowed forward with their long spears, the human hedgehog, trying to keep the crazy Italians at a distance. The battle hung in the balance. At some point in the fight, Pyrrhus' bodyguard, the man who had taken his armor and cloak, was killed in the fighting. Panic swept over Pyrrhus' army when they heard that the king had fallen and their formation began to waver. Morale is so important in these ancient battles, so important in phalanx battle, because the formation's integrity is central to everything. The formation's integrity is interrupted, the battle's lost. The Romans carried Pyrrhus's gear back to Lavinius, and the legionaries cheered and attacked with renewed ferocity. But then the real Pyrrhus came riding out, his helmet off to show that he had survived. The battle once again swung back into full gear. Now Pyrrhus played his trump card. He had held his war elephants back, but then he ordered them into the fight. The twenty elephants crashed forward, trumpeting and thundering into the Roman cavalry. The Roman horses were like, what is that, what is that, get it away, and scattered in all directions from this terrifying new appearance. The flight of the cavalry panicked the rest of Lavinius's army, and soon the Romans were racing back across the ford as Pyrrhus's cavalry rode them down. The Battle of Heraclea had come to an end. Pyrrhus sacked the Roman camp and seized a great amount of plunder. 
He had clearly won the battle, though sources differ on the actual cost of the victory. Plutarch, whose numbers are probably closest to accurate, gives the figure as 7,000 Roman dead and 4,000 dead for Pyrrhus, in addition to 1,800 Roman prisoners. But Pyrrhus suffered particularly heavy losses in his elite units, his commanders, and his bodyguard, the cream of his army. It was a victory, sure, but it had not come cheap. But still, Cassius Dio says that, Pyrrhus became famous for his victory and acquired a great reputation from it, to such an extent that many who had been remaining neutral came over to his side. Many subjugated Italians saw Pyrrhus, like they would see Hannibal 60 years later, when he invaded Italy, as their chance to break free of Rome's control. So Pyrrhus figured, hey, I won a battle, Rome is in trouble, let's make a deal. He sent his trusted friend Cineus to Rome to propose peace. When Cineus arrived with Pyrrhus' peace proposal, which included the return of the Roman prisoners, many senators were inclined to accept it. But an ancient blind senator named Appius Claudius rebuked his fellow Romans, saying that he wished he was deaf as well as blind, so he didn't have to hear them talking about surrender. The elder senator rallied the Romans to hold out against Pyrrhus no matter the cost. The Romans didn't wage war to gain peace. They waged war to win. For Rome, even after a defeat, wars only ended with a complete victory. Pyrrhus decided to test that theory. He marched north with his army directly towards Rome to try and scare them into compliance. He expected the Romans to behave like any other Greek city, that they would give up when faced with a battlefield defeat and an imminent invasion. But as he got closer to Rome, he was shocked to find multiple new armies springing up in his path. One consistent thread throughout the sources is Pyrrhus' surprise at the apparently limitless manpower and resources of the Roman Republic. They're like the Borg, they just keep coming. Cineus compared Rome's army to the many-headed Hydra of Greek myth. As a side note, this is a direct comparison that's in our sources, and I think it's pretty cool that the Hydra is still invoked today as an example of something that just won't die when it was being invoked um, 2,300 years ago. I think that's pretty awesome, personally. But still, accepting that he could accomplish nothing else this year, Pyrrhus retreated back to southern Italy for the winter. Come the next year, it would be a rematch. During the winter of 280-279 BC, a Roman embassy arrived in Tarentum. Pyrrhus hoped that they were there to talk about peace, but no dice. They just wanted to ransom their prisoners back and nothing more. Pyrrhus was impressed by the lead negotiator, Gaius Fabricus, who refused multiple bribes despite being known for his poverty. So then Pyrrhus decided to try to scare Fabricus by using an elephant. Seriously. Like they were having dinner, talking about, eh, well, let's ransom the prisoners back. And Pyrrhus' servants, like, led an elephant up behind the Roman and had him trumpet over the guy's head. And to be honest, this is a pretty stupid thing to do. But Fabricus was unmoved. He said, Your gold made no impression on me yesterday. Neither does your beast today. The war would continue. Pyrrhus set out in the spring of 279 BC to secure southern Italy this time before making another march towards Rome. The Romans were reluctant to fight Pyrrhus in battle again after the defeat at Heraclea, but he needed to be dealt with before he gained any more ground. The new army, now commanded by Publius Decius Mus, 
marched south to confront Pyrrhus at the town of Asculum. This would be a colossal battle. Sources put Pyrrhus' and the Roman armies at around 70,000 to 80,000 men apiece, which are stupid huge numbers for an ancient battle, rivaling the size of the Union and Confederate armies at Gettysburg. Pyrrhus' battle line may have been as long as 7 kilometers. The Romans had also come prepared. They had lost to Pyrrhus' war elephants last time, but this time they had a secret weapon. These were 300 specially designed war wagons, studded with pole weapons and flaming grappling hooks, packed with missile troops, meant to panic and frighten the great king's war beasts. The Battle of Asculum lasted either one to two days, depending on the ancient historian you're reading. Like I said, sources, man, they don't agree on anything. But based on my reading, the two-day narrative is more likely. The first day's fighting was a draw, and neither side came to grips with the other. But the second day would be a true meat grinder, a gigantic slugfest on open terrain between the Roman sledgehammer and the Macedonian chainsaw. It seemed like a repeat of the Battle of Heraclea at first. The armies advanced, singing war songs and chanting war cries. The Roman Hestadian Principes locked into mortal combat with the Macedonian pikemen, pushing the pikes aside with their shields and slashing through the hedge with their swords. Dust mingled with screaming and sweat and gore once again. Hard, brutal fighting between the two infantry lines ensued, with neither side gaining an advantage. Pyrrhus ordered his elephants into the fray, hoping they could turn the tide, just like at Heraclea. The Roman commanders deployed their anti-elephant wagons, and at first these were very successful, targeting their fire weapons and spears at the poor animals' eyes and bellies. But Pyrrhus had sent detachments of skirmishers with his elephants, who pelted the wagons with missiles and stabbed at the oxen. The Roman crews were forced to abandon their carts. But in the meantime, the Romans managed to tear a hole through some of Pyrrhus' less experienced Tarentine allies. 20,000 Roman infantry crashed into the gap in the line, and as Pyrrhus rode over to try and fix this new problem, a second crisis developed. His men and officers were shouting at pointing it behind them, at a cloud of smoke coming from their camp. A detachment of Roman allies had slipped behind Pyrrhus' lines into his undefended camp, and began to pillage it and set it on fire. The ancient army's camp was much more than just a series of tents. It contained the supplies, personal possessions, sometimes the families of the ancient soldier. It was often everything they had in the world. Pyrrhus immediately sent his elephants and cavalry to try and save the camp, but it was too late. The Epirote camp was in ruins, with plundered treasure, burnt tents, and dead civilians scattered across the field. The Battle of Asculum dissolved into chaos, a mess of confusion with individual pockets of men fighting all over the field. The neat battle lines, the one line against the other, crumbled into frightened, angry bands of violent men in armor, with horses and elephants and war wagons crashing across the bloody, trampled grass. But in this panicked circus of destruction, Pyrrhus managed to reform his phalanx and pin the Romans down. Once again, his elephants were the decisive force, finally driving the Romans into retreat. The Battle of Asculum, after two agonizing, blood-soaked days, was finally over. But the nature of Asculum is revealed by the fact that the sources don't even agree 
on who won. Technically, Pyrrhus had won. The Romans retreated at the end of the day. But they didn't really run away, instead just withdrawing in an ordered mass, battered but not broken. So if it was a victory, what exactly kind of victory had Pyrrhus won? The best sources state that Pyrrhus lost 3,500 dead and the Romans lost 6,000. But that doesn't tell the whole story. The exhausted Epirote army returned to their wrecked camp to look at the remnants of their possessions and find their slaughtered families. The lack of medical supplies and shelter burnt in the destruction of the camp meant that many of Pyrrhus' wounded would later die, and once again his losses had fallen on his elite units and his commanders. Many of his personal friends from Epirus, those guys he wanted to spend time drinking wine and talking with after the wars were over, had been killed in the Great Bloodbath, and he himself, Pyrrhus himself, had been badly wounded in the arm by a javelin. It is at this battle, though some sources say Heraclea, that Pyrrhus was truly overcome by despair. When one of his officers congratulated him on the victory, Pyrrhus is supposed to have said something. There are various translations, but I have a personal favorite. Pyrrhus said, One more such victory, and we are undone. The Battle of Asculum is usually held up as the Pyrrhic victory, a victory that is not worth the cost. And that may have been true, but it was what came after the battle that truly made it Pyrrhic, in my opinion. Not just the numbers of dead or even the ruined Epirote camp because Pyrrhus made the decision to find another war to fight, somewhere else, an easier war. Pyrrhus once again changed his objective, the kind of decision that would turn his life into a series of Pyrrhic victories. Let's review. King Pyrrhus of Epirus went to Italy after the Greek cities asked him for help, expecting to kick around some Italian barbarians, gain some fame and glory, and call it a day. But when the going got much, much tougher than he expected, thanks to these psycho-Roman people that no one had ever heard of, Pyrrhus got going somewhere else, where the going wasn't so tough. Somewhere he could gain some easy victories and win some easy glory. Somewhere like... Sicily. So this was Pyrrhus's worst tendency as a general by a long shot. When he got frustrated or bored, when he got to the less fun and more difficult parts of a conflict, he would just pick up and go somewhere else. And he did this a lot. The entire rest of this episode is going to be Pyrrhus doing exactly that. And if this story starts to seem repetitive at some point, yeah, yeah, that's Pyrrhus for you. Classic Pyrrhus. If it needs to be spelled out, this was a bad personality trait. Pyrrhus is like the dad who starts a dozen home improvement projects and doesn't complete any of them. He never finished anything he started, he never left a peaceful situation behind him when he left, and he kept getting involved in stuff that was really none of his business. So the question, I guess, is why? Why did he do this? My take is that Pyrrhus wanted the glory, he wanted the adventure, but he didn't want all that hard, boring stuff that came with it. 
He was focused on military exploits and military achievement to the exclusion of everything else. He got bored and impatient with administration, diplomacy, or policy. He was chasing this image of the Greek hero, of Achilles or Hercules or Alexander. Once again, Plutarch says it better than I can. Pyrrhus was one of those unmindful and thoughtless persons who let all that occurs to them slip away from them as time passes on, retaining and preserving nothing. They lose the enjoyment of their present prosperity by fancying something better to come. Yet they reject their present success as though it did not concern them and do nothing but dream of future uncertainties. In 278 BC, Pyrrhus got a message from the Greek cities of Sicily, asking for his help against a foreign invader. But he also got a message from Macedon, asking for his help against a foreign invader. Now, this could have been his chance to take Macedon, which, if you'll remember, had been something he was been trying to do for like a decade, but Pyrrhus decided that Sicily looked easier, so he picked that one. This did not go over well with Tarentum. The Tarentines were like, dude, what the heck? The Romans are still out there. But Pyrrhus like, eh, I'll be back. I'll be right back after I finished up in Sicily. How long would that take? Uh, who knows, but I'll be back. So Pyrrhus sailed over to Sicily, expecting to kick around some barbarians, gain some fame and glory, and call it a day. This time his enemy was the North African city of Carthage, which was trying to conquer Sicily and threatening the Greek cities. If Carthage sounds familiar, yeah, that's the city that Rome is going to fight in these massive wars, in these really famous wars, great wars, but there's been like five podcast series done on them, I'm not going to touch them. Over the next few years, Pyrrhus began to drive the Carthaginians back, and the Sicilians hailed him as a hero. Pyrrhus was, as usual, aggressive and ludicrously brave. When his army stormed the walls of Eryx, he was the first onto the wall, sword in hand, slaughtering and just scaring anyone who stood in his way. Classic Pyrrhus. But when Pyrrhus got to the much tougher fortress of Lilibaeum, he stalled. All his attacks failed, and he couldn't starve it out since it was supplied by sea. So he asked the Sicilian cities to provide him with money and ships for a fleet so he could go invade Africa and fight the Carthaginians there. Again, Pyrrhus runs in this, an obstacle. He's like, hmm, let's go somewhere else. The Sicilians were understandably upset that Pyrrhus was planning to run off and fight a new war, just like he had done to the Tarentines. When they started making a fuss, Pyrrhus <sighs> occupied their cities, executed many of their leaders, and proclaimed a military dictatorship. Again, classic Pyrrhus. According to Plutarch, Not dealing with the cities in an acceptable or gentle manner, but in a lordly way, angrily putting compulsion and penalties upon them. He ceased to be a popular leader and became a tyrant, and added to his name for severity a name for ingratitude and faithlessness. The Sicilians were so angry that they rose up against Pyrrhus and switched sides to Carthage, you know, the country that they had asked Pyrrhus to come save them from. In the meantime, Pyrrhus received another message from Tarentum. They said that Rome was back, stronger than ever. You said you were going to come back, dude. Now we really need you to come back. Well, you know Pyrrhus. When the going gets tough, Pyrrhus gets going somewhere else. Once again, after a rush of quick victories, Pyrrhus got bored and frustrated and found an easier war to fight. 
Pyrrhus did not have a fun return to Italy. The Carthaginians attacked his fleet on his way back from Sicily, and when he landed, he was harassed by his enemies the whole way up the Italian toe. In one small engagement, an enemy warrior challenged Pyrrhus to single combat, and our hero allegedly chopped the man in half, height-wise, with a swing of his sword, which I do not believe for a second, because video games aside, that's not really possible. There's too many bones in the way. Still, Plutarch describes Pyrrhus as terrifying. Full of wrath, smeared with blood, and with a countenance terrible to look upon. But Pyrrhus the murderer man was also short of money, so on the way back to Tarentum, he also looted a sacred temple. Many ancient sources blame his future turns of fortune on this sacrilege, but I'll let you be the judge. I think personally that all of Pyrrhus's later bad fortune was all him. Now, everything Pyrrhus had accomplished after Heraclea and Asculum had been unraveled in the three years he'd been in Sicily. The Romans had taken advantage of his absence by starting to reconquer southern Italy, because they're like the Borg, they just keep coming. So Pyrrhus marched out for his third and final battle with the Roman Republic. The Roman army would be led by Consul Manius Curius Dentatus. Dentatus was allegedly born with a full set of teeth, which is legitimately horrifying. Imagine the poor midwife seeing that crap. So they gave him the name Dentatus. Dental. You know, think about dental exam. Dentist. Bro's name is literally Toothy. But Mr. Chompers over here was a tough veteran general with multiple victories to his name. Dentatus was famously incorruptible. You might call him a toothful person. So he had been assigned to finally deal with this Pyrrhus problem once and for all. The Romans were just tired of this Greek king coming over here in their neck of the woods and getting all up in their business. I don't know if anyone's pointed out that Dentatus and Pyrrhus were both famous for their uh, dental problems. But in the upcoming Battle of Beneventum, these armies would bite hard. They would fight tooth and nail. It would be a jaw-dropping clash. Who would the crown go to? Because these two armies and these two commanders were molar opposites. Okay, I think I'm done. I'm sorry for that. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sorry at all. I'm sorry, I'm sorry at all. I did that on purpose. You're going to live with it. But a lot of Pyrrhus's allies from the last time he was in Italy refused to join him, afraid that he would run out on them again, which was a, uh valid concern. <laughs> so Pyrrhus wanted to gain a quick dramatic victory that would persuade his allies to rejoin him. So when Pyrrhus faced Dentatus at Beneventum in 275 BC, he decided on a bold risky move, a night attack. He would take a large detachment of his army and try to catch the Romans by surprise. Now, night attacks, as we saw during the 45, are a risky proposition at best in the age before electricity, and we're about to find out why. It is not easy to find your way even through familiar country at night, and Pyrrhus had infantry, cavalry, and elephants all trying to trek through this crazy tangled forest on their night march. According to Dionysius of Halicarnassus, his army used long trails that were not even used by people, but were mere goat paths through woods and crags. Imagine trying to lead an elephant up this crazy narrow path. It's no wonder that his army got turned around and everything got confused. So when the sun rose on the day of battle, 
Pyrrhus' attack force was straggling out of the woods, tired and disorganized, and the element of surprise was lost. Dentatus had his legionaries up and moving in a matter of minutes. The sudden Roman onslaught hit the attack force with their usual power, scattering the demoralized and exhausted Greeks. Pyrrhus ran off with some of his cavalry to bring up the main army, but the damage had been done. Dentatus' army marched out in battle formation, confident and eager. The two armies met in their third and final confrontation, and the battle, again, initially seemed to go the same way of Heraclea and Asculum. Dentatus had chosen his battlefield well, and his flanks were well protected by close terrain. His legions began to drive the phalanx back. Once again, Pyrrhus committed his elephants, and the elephant charge broke part of the Roman line and sent the infantry into retreat. But then the elephants ran into Dentatus' fortified camp, because Dentatus was like, hey, what if I fortified my camp so if some breakthrough happens, we'll have a fallback position. You see how the Romans keep adapting, improving, thinking of new ways to counter their enemies. So these elephants ran into the fortified camp, and they were pelted with showers of javelins from the wooden wall. According to Cassius Dio, although this is not supported by necessarily any other source, but it's a better version of the story, and I like it better, one of the javelins wounded a younger elephant, who shook off his rider and wandered around bleeding for his mother. His distressed cries panicked the other elephants, remember elephant panic, who turned away from the Roman camp and stampeded right back into Pyrrhus's army. This was the big risk of using elephants. They had a tendency to run amok and inflict more damage on your own army than on the enemy. And the elephant route was the turning point of the battle. The Epirote phalanx was broken and the Roman infantry lunged forward, their short swords finding their way through metal and cloth and bone and flesh. Pyrrhus's army retreated in panic and the king had no choice but to go with them. If the Battle of Beneventum was a Roman victory, it wasn't an overwhelming one. But Pyrrhus still lost many of his elephants and many of his best men, who had been part of that night attack force and they'd been just about wiped out. If Asculum had been a Pyrrhic victory, Beneventum had been a Pyrrhic defeat. The King of Epirus was running out of money, men, and allied support. At this point, Pyrrhus decided <sighs> that when the going got tough, he would go somewhere else somewhere where the going wasn't so tough. He decided to return to Epirus and plan his next move. He left a garrison in Tarentum, claiming that he would come back someday, but he never did. Pyrrhus left Italy with only 8,000 infantry and 500 cavalry left, less than half the army he had come with, and it sounds like he lost most of his elephants along the way. After six years in Italy and Sicily, he had spilled lots of blood and fought many battles, but left things pretty much as he'd found them. Once again, Pyrrhus looked for an easy war with easy glory. He would spend the last three years of his life trying and failing to find it. Pyrrhus returned to a quiet, peaceful Epirus, but over in Greece and Macedonia, the dumpster fire that was the age of the Diadochi had continued to rage. While Pyrrhus had been off on adventure in Italy and Sicily, Macedonia and Greece had been invaded from the north by a group of Celtic barbarians called the Galatians. Macedonia had asked Pyrrhus for help, if you'll remember, hey, we're being invaded, but Pyrrhus said no because he wanted to go to Sicily instead, that looked easier. So Macedonia turned to Antigonus Gonatus, the son of Pyrrhus' old friend-slash-enemy Demetrius. 
Antigonus defeated the Galatians in a big victory in 278 BC and took the title of King of Macedon. So Antigonus Gonatus was on the upswing, and of course Pyrrhus was like, huh, look at this little twerp, I bet I could take him. But Pyrrhus's real motive was probably money. In ancient warfare, like in all warfare, money was a big deal, and Epirus was just not a rich kingdom. To sustain his army, Pyrrhus needed to invade and loot other territories. He could have just, you know, reduced his army and left everyone else alone, but what are the chances Pyrrhus is going to do that? Now... See if any of this sounds familiar. In 274 BC, Pyrrhus invaded Macedon and enjoyed a lot of initial success. He defeated Antigonus's army in the Battle of the Aus River and took most of the kingdom in a lightning conquest. But Antigonus held on to the major coastal cities and without a naval force, the Epirates couldn't root him out. Pyrrhus got bored and frustrated trying to besiege Antigonus's fortress and went on to take the easier target of Aege. This was the ancient burial place of the Macedonian kings, and Pyrrhus's mercenaries looted and desecrated their tombs I, for whatever reason. When the Macedonians complained, Pyrrhus basically told them to shut up. Despite asking for his help not too long ago, the Macedonian people were soon frustrated and rebelling against Pyrrhus. He had worn out his welcome in record time. Yep, sounds like classic Pyrrhus. And just like classic Pyrrhus, he got distracted on another side quest. Now that the easiest part of the Macedonian invasion was over, he was frustrated and looked for a better opportunity, and, of course, he found one. An exiled Spartan noble named Cleonymus came to Pyrrhus to ask for his help. Cleonymus had been next in line for one of the two Spartan kingships, but due to his violent and irrational behavior, he had been passed over for someone else. Okay, stop. Number one, how violent and irrational do you have to be for the Spartans to reject you? Number two, violent and irrational sounds like this guy and Pyrrhus will get along just fine. Number three, you know exactly what Pyrrhus is going to do now. When the going gets tough, eh. So in 272 BC, Pyrrhus marched south into Greece, thinking that maybe this would be an easier target than Macedon. As soon as he left for Sparta, Antigonus Gennatus came out from his fortresses and started reconquering Macedon. Classic Pyrrhus. Now, Sparta in this time period, Pyrrhus's period, was a shadow of its former self, and they didn't have nearly the influence they had once held in the Greek world. As we saw last week, this is a century after Leuctra, Sparta is almost a non-entity. But when Pyrrhus came crashing into Spartan territory, defeated their army, and surrounded their city, a little spark of that old mythology of Leonidas and Thermopylae, maybe a little highlight reel from the Spartan PR department, came blazing back to life. When some of the Spartan men discussed evacuating the city, the Spartan women absolutely refused to back down. One of them, Archidamia, came to the council sword in hand to tell the Spartan men that they weren't leaving and their men had better defend them. The Spartans, heavily outnumbered and outmatched, resisted like lions. They were encouraged and emboldened by their women who built trenches and barricades to defend their once great city. Pyrrhus led the attacks in person, but was thrown back each time. When the Spartan king Aureus finally returned with reinforcements, Pyrrhus called off the siege and withdrew. If he had kept up the pressure, he probably would have captured Sparta and won fame as the first person to ever do so, 
but it was classic Pyrrhus. He got bored and frustrated, his enemies were tougher than he thought, so he went somewhere else. When the going gets tough, etc. So Pyrrhus found a new adventure. One more side quest. The Greek city of Argos was having a civil dispute. One faction appealed to Antigonus Gennatus, one faction appealed to Pyrrhus. Like, both of them like, hey, come help us. Since it appears that Pyrrhus literally could not say no whenever someone asked him to come get involved in something that really wasn't any of his business, he marched his army to Argos. But the Spartans weren't done with him, and they continued to harass Pyrrhus's withdrawal. In one of these ambushes, Pyrrhus's son Ptolemy, who was just as brave and reckless as his father, was killed by a mercenary from Crete. A furious and grief-stricken Pyrrhus rode back and cut the Spartan ambush to pieces until he was, according to Plutarch, sated with Spartan blood. Pyrrhus and his army arrived in front of Argos to see Antigonus's army already waiting for him on the other side of the city. At this point, I kind of have to wonder what his game plan was. Did he have a plan? What was going through his head? Either way, what was about to happen in Argos was entirely predictable. Classic Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus decided to capture the city of Argos through <sighs> a night attack. That went so well last time, right? Under cover of darkness, Pyrrhus's mercenaries snuck in through the open gate of Argos. But the Argives came boiling out like an angry anthive to save their city. Soon Antigonus Gennatus was pushing troops into Argos to help them fight the Epirotes off. Pyrrhus, sensing that his force was in danger, led his cavalry into the city. When he saw the mess that he had gotten himself into, he tried to order a retreat, but someone mistook this for an order to attack, and soon there was a massive street fight traffic jam in the middle of Argos. Just hundreds and thousands of men and horses and even elephants just jammed together in chaos. One of the elephants got stuck in the gate and started screaming, which panicked the other elephants, which started running around and causing more chaos, and it just, it just went berserk. Everything was nuts. And in the midst of all this mayhem, Pyrrhus met his nemesis. Some poor Argive kid who had just come out to defend his city and was now face to face with the blood-soaked murder machine of Epirus. When the young man's spear slightly wounded Pyrrhus, he turned on his foe with his usual berserker nightmare face, that scary face that had terrified so many people. But the young Argive's mother, watching the battle from the rooftops, saw the king coming towards her son, murder in his eyes. She picked a tile up off the roof and threw it. The tile struck Pyrrhus at the base of the neck, right below his helmet, and he fell off of his horse in a daze. A Macedonian soldier seized Pyrrhus and dragged him into a doorway. When the man removed the king's helmet to strike the killing blow, Pyrrhus gave him such a terrifying glare, that murder gaze that had fixated so many people, that the soldier almost faltered, like shook. But then, with his trembling hand, began to chop. Within a minute or two, the Macedonian soldier held Pyrrhus's severed head aloft. The king of Epirus had finally met his terrible, entirely predictable end, probably at around the age of 46, getting involved in something that was, as usual, just none of his business. It's kind of fitting to me that it was a mama bear looking out for her baby boy that finally did it, that finally brought down the great murder king who had created so many grieving mothers in his pointless, reckless quest for glory. 
Pyrrhus's ultimate fate was pretty standard for most of the Diadochi, most of the great successor kings. Almost all of them met a violent end, assassinated, killed in battle, or dying in shameful exile. This was a world where everyone wanted to have it all, everyone wanted to be Alexander, and almost all of them died trying. One ancient historian ended his history of the age of the Diadochi with the death of Pyrrhus, the last of the true successors. Antigonus Gonatus received Pyrrhus's head and supposedly burst into tears, distraught at the unseemly death of such a great warrior king, his father's friend and comrade. But that didn't stop him from capturing Pyrrhus's entire, literally headless army and demanding harsh peace terms from Pyrrhus's son Helenus. Helenus was allowed to return with his army and his father's body to Epirus, but had to give up everything his father had conquered. Antigonus himself had the last word. He said Pyrrhus was like, A player with dice who makes many fine throws, but does not understand how to use them when they are made. And yeah, that pretty much hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? And that was the legacy of Pyrrhus of Epirus. That it had all come to nothing. There was no remnant, no lasting legacy of his conquests. The Romans conquered Tarentum in 270 BC, two years after Pyrrhus' death, and they would go on to fight the Carthaginians for Sicily. Macedonia and the Greek cities continued to struggle for power. Epirus would fade once again into a backwater, a small kingdom that Rome would easily annihilate a century later. For all his talent, all his glory, and all his fame, and all his victories, within a few years, the world moved on like Pyrrhus had never existed. He left nothing behind but his name. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, I hope you enjoyed Mr. Pierce's wild murder ride as much as I enjoyed telling you about it. I love ancient history. Wasn't this all just so crazy? Isn't it just a strange, wacky time period? Look at all these psychotic idiots. It's great. But okay, that doesn't tell you why you should care. So what can we say about the life of Pyrrhus of Epirus? What can we say about this guy? Well, I think there's a lot to be learned from this story. Some of it is straightforward military historical analysis, but some of it is, well, kind of a life lesson. Pyrrhus of Epirus has a larger-than-life reputation in many of the ancient sources. He's regarded by them, not us, just by, but by them, as one of the great generals, something like half a step down from Alexander the Great. There was this famous conversation that may or may not have happened, like all these conversations, where two of the greatest military rivals in history, the Carthaginian general Hannibal and his nemesis, the Roman Scipio Africanus, had a discussion asking who were the greatest generals of all time. Scipio asked Hannibal what he thought, and Hannibal said Alexander was the greatest, Pyrrhus was the second greatest, and the third was Hannibal himself. Hannibal, quit downing yourself. You were leagues ahead of Pyrrhus. At least you had a strategy. I personally think a lot of Pyrrhus's reputation comes from the fact that he defeated Rome not once, but twice in large field battles. Out of all the Greek kings, and Rome would fight many Greek kings in the future, he had the most success against Rome when it was still on its rise to power, the first really dangerous foe they faced. 
The Romans amplified Pyrrhus' reputation and said he was super awesome so that they looked even more awesome for eventually defeating him. And there's some degree of truth to this, though. Pyrrhus was an excellent tactical field commander, very good at battles, full of tricks and tactics and deceptions. You know, as we have seen, he was courageous and heroic and downright bloodthirsty. And as we have also seen, that was what eventually got his crazy butt killed. We've seen that the famous Pyrrhic victories of Heraclea and Asculum were costly victories, those two big battles. But we've also seen that Pyrrhus survived. He kept on fighting for seven more years and doesn't seem to have run into serious issues with the quality or numbers of his army. I think these two battles, these two famous Pyrrhic victories, the ones that are famous for that, are overrated as to the actual amount they cost him because they didn't seem to really stop him or slow him down from going on more lunatic adventures. But was Pyrrhus a good general? Was he as great as ancient sources say? Was he good? Despite all his successes? I don't think so. I don't think Pyrrhus is a good general. And for one very simple reason. He had no strategy. No objective. No goal. None of the battles he won or lost, or cities he took, or causes he fought for, none of it was for anything, served any greater purpose. It was all pointless. Like, if you can go back through what I just described and find any overarching design to Pyrrhus' random adventuring, you know, tell historians about that. Be my guest. At least Alexander the Great was trying to do something. Pyrrhus got thousands of soldiers, his son, and eventually himself killed, chasing the dream of Alexander. But he didn't have Alexander's creativity, or strategic mind, or vision, or gravitas. He just liked to war. Pyrrhus was more concerned with looking great than being great. He was more concerned with easy glory than hard, lasting victories. He always took the easy way out, always got going when the going got tough. He wanted the fame of his cousin, but wasn't willing to put in the work for it. And don't we all know someone like that? Haven't many of us, myself included, fallen into that trap before? Haven't there been times when we spent our effort uselessly, moving on from unfinished task to the next, looking for the thing that comes easy? Haven't there been moments where we sought the easy dream over the harder reality? Haven't there been times when we've been distracted from what was important and what really mattered by trying to be someone we're not? Maybe I'm blowing smoke here. I don't know. But when we look at it this way, doesn't Pyrrhus of Epirus seem less like a psycho murder king from the ancient world, which, to be fair, he was, and more human? Doesn't he suddenly seem a lot more relatable? Because Pyrrhic victories don't just come to kings and generals. They come in everyday life. Wasted effort, missed opportunities, chasing dreams that just can't be. We've all had Pyrrhic victories where the gain was not worth the cost. It should make us think about what's important, what matters, what the goal is in the end, and whether what we're doing is getting us closer or whether we're just running in place. And when you're on the path to your goal whether that's your career, your family, your cause, or your God, and the going gets tough, I'm sure any of you could do a lot, lot better than Pyrrhus of Epirus. 
Thanks so, so much for listening to me today. I hope you took some historical and life lessons from this. I am not a guidance counselor, so please don't bring me up in therapy. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just don't brag about your murder plots where everyone can hear them. If you want to read the heaps of stuff I've written about the ancient world, including a short article about Pyrrhus of Epirus, which is superfluous. I said everything I said in that article here. It's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, and, and if it's in ancient Greek, I'll get someone to decipher it. And pack your bags, because we are leaving Europe. Leaving Europe for a while. Because next week we are taking a trip to India. I've talked about ancient Greece and Rome for the last two episodes, but what was India up to in this time period? What was going on in India during the time of Pyrrhus of Epirus? It's time to meet the Maurya emperors, the first great dynasty of the Indian subcontinent, the Caesars of India. See you next week on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>